for each of you listeners, it's very, very important to look at this as a time when you can really go deep inside yourself and ask yourself, what is it I, I really want for the rest of my life, no matter how old you are? What, where do I want to go from here? How do I want to spend the, the days remaining to me? What is it I must do to make that happen? What's been holding me back or what might hold me back? How do I take actions to move beyond that? How do I change my perception and then take the actions to move beyond that? And when we do that, I think each of you, when you do that, you'll find that it's an incredibly powerful experience in your life. Perhaps the very most important experience of of your life is to really look at what you want and dream big. Don't be afraid to dream big. What's holding you back? What are the first steps you need to take to make that happen? What steps do you need to take every single day to make that happen? Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. One of the great joys of a podcast becoming successful is that you get to talk to people who changed your life. I read John Perkins' Confessions of an Economic Hitman about 10 years ago. I could not put it down. I saw the world differently, especially government, corporations. America, money, what my taxes support, politics. John is about to release a new book called Touching the Jaguar. He's also written several books in the meantime on shamanism and his experience dating to before his economic hitman trajectory on how the worlds of shamanism and business interact, how to bring them together, and showing how relevant they are today. And this book ties these things together. That's what he talks about in this episode. And I haven't read the book. I've only read excerpts, but it looks like that's what the book is about. It's relevant today, not just any day, but during a virus, during a pandemic, during a time when people feel constrained and stuck. If you're listening to this just after I posted it, listen for the workshop that he's offering on April 29th, because as a pre-release to the book, he's doing a workshop, or you can click the link that I put in the text. And the workshop is to work on the things that he talks about in the book. So I recommend getting the book right away. On a personal note, I hope that you share my experience when listening to him on the fears that I've been facing lately or setting myself up to act on. For example, sharing my past on this podcast, that was really big on my mind. If you've been listening to my, especially the episode on Bruce Springsteen that was titled Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll not too long ago, I mean, I can't believe that I'd be the only one who's struggling with, in his words, a jaguar circling around me that I could act on, that I've set myself up to act on it, but I've taken a long time. I'm listening to him and I'm thinking, it's time to act. I should act with confidence, not so much hesitation. I can't believe I'm the only one like that. So I hope that if you have a fear that's holding you back, that you also listen to this and think of what you can do to touch your Jaguar and make a difference. Here's John Perkins. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with John Perkins. John, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Joshua. Glad to hear. And I have to start by saying that I read Confessions of an Economic Hitman Probably 10 years ago, I read the paperback. So it's been a while, but it was a book. There aren't a whole lot of books that change how I view the world, government, corporations, what empire means. And while reading it, for me, I couldn't help but think of Rome and Thoreau and you know where my taxes are going and Upton Sinclair. And that was a long time ago. Now you've written a lot of books since. So now you've written a new one that's about to come out in, in about a month. And I kind of want to jump into Touching the Jaguar, the new book. And I kind of want to talk about Confessions of, of an Economic Hitman and the view of everything that's come since. And I wonder, where do you want to go first? Well, let me just say, I, I think that uh, although I had no idea the virus was on the way when I wrote Touching the Jaguar, and I, I just finished it you know, a couple of months ago, it's in press right now. You can pre-order it now. It's it'd be on sale on 
June 16th, but you can pre-order it at my website. Uh, when I was writing it, I had no idea, of course, that we were going to have this coronavirus. But now I see it's the, it's actually the perfect book for this for these times yeah. because it it really outlines a whole process for dealing with the unexpected and the chaotic and the destructive. And I I, I wrote it partly to connect the five books I'd written on shamanism and indigenous people with the four books I've written on global economics and and intrigue. Because, you know, when I was speaking at events with businessmen or corporate types or economists, the places that I was invited to speak at because of my books on global economics, which includes Confessions of an Economic Hitman and, and, and three others, I wouldn't talk much about shamanism, but people would sometimes ask me, so are you really the guy that wrote those books on shamanism? And then when I spoke at, at events, let's call them New Age events or whatever, people that were interested in the shamanic books, people would say, well, I can't believe you're the same guy that wrote The Confessions of an Economic Hitman and these other economics books. But to me, the two areas are totally connected because what shamanism teaches you is that reality is molded by our perceptions. All human reality is molded by human perceptions. So when you think about it, Joshua, there's, there's no United States, there's no Russia, there's no culture, there's no religion, there's no economies, there are no corporations, except as we perceive those things. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it has a huge impact on reality. That's a very, very much of a shamanic concept. I, I talk in the book about how my first experience with a shaman back in 1969 when I was deep in the Amazon rainforest was the shaman basically took me through a process that healed me of a sickness that was killing me. And it was all done through changing perception. And as I then studied with more shamans in places like Iran and, and uh, Indonesia and Egypt and around Latin America, I found that that was a common thread. All shamanism is basically based on altering reality by altering perceptions. And then I came to realize that that's the same for modern psychotherapy and quantum physics. And in fact, for corporate advertising, marketing, <laughs> it's all about perceptions. So the way that we change a, a very failing governmental, social, economic system, something I call a death economy, it's more than just the economy, but it's everything that revolves around that. A death economy that's, that's basically consuming itself into extinction, that's destroying itself and destroying the environment. How do we change that and create a life economy, an economic system that is itself a renewable resource that, that, that cleans up pollution and regenerates destroyed environments and comes up with the technologies that don't ravage the earth? How do we do that? We do it by changing perception because our current system and I'm simplifying here, the, the book goes into, of course, more detail, but the simple premise here is that our system is driven to a very large degree by a perception that was really promoted by Milton Friedman in 1976 when he won the Nobel Prize in, in economics. It had been growing before that, but he really pushed it forward. And that premise is that the only responsibility for a business is to maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And as I say, it had been growing for some time, but he really took it over the top, and it was embraced by President Reagan, Prime Minister Thatcher. Basically, every, every business school in the country began to teach that, and it's taken us to this very dangerous situation where we've created this death economy that's really behind most of our crises. It's behind climate change. It's behind species extinctions. It's behind inequality and terrorism and so many other things. But it's based on this one perception. And if we change that perception, which, which is in the process of happening, actually, to, to say that the goal of business is to maximize long-term benefits for people and, and nature, for, for all of us, and that, our, that for us as individuals, rather than trying to maximize short-term materialistic gains, gains, which most of us have been taught to do, <laughs> we, we really look at the long term for ourselves and our children and how do we make a better world truly for future generations. And it can't just be of people because people are t totally dependent on 
you know, the, the natural world. What do we do if there are no birds? What do we do if there are no fish? And so what do we do if there's no insects? And so I saw how these two genres, the shamanic books I'd written and the ones on global economics, were, were totally tied together. But that was never overtly expressed in the, in the, with economists and, and businessmen. I didn't use the word shamanism. <laughs> and with, with the shamanic people, I seldom talked about the corporate world. And so touching the jaguar is a bridge between those two. It connects those two worlds and says that the way that we transform ourselves, so that the subtitle of the book is Touching the Jaguar, Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life and the World. And the way we do that, we, we change our life and the world, our lives and the world, is by changing our perceptions of what it means to be successful for us as individuals, each of us. And I go into that in detail in the book, what each individual can do to make this happen to, to you, to you as an individual, but also how we can do this on a much larger level, how we can truly transform our relationship, the human relationship with the earth, get out of this death economy and transition into a life economy. So, so this book is, is, in my opinion, it's the best book I've ever written, of course. I usually feel that way. But it also is it's pivotal in that it connects these two genres that before that most everybody saw as totally separate. I want to ask about a lot of things, but I want to be selfish because you're, you're bridging two things that I'm struggling with myself in my life. And I want to ask on a, on a personal level, I mean, it sounds like at, at one stage you were keeping these things separate and some people asked, what about, wait, what's that over there? Did you consciously choose against resistance to bring these two worlds together, if that's the right way to ask the question? Or was it, were you scared to connect shamanism and business? Well, by the time I started writing Touching the Jaguar a couple of years ago, uh, I'd already very strongly made that connection myself. And I was beginning to talk about it at, at, at various events. And we were, I was taking groups of people uh, into the Amazon with the Pachamama Alliance, a nonprofit that I co-founded, and uh, also with uh, Kogi shamans in the mountains of Colombia and the Mayan shamans in, in, in Guatemala. So I was, I was taking people on these trips to study with the shamans, and this idea of touching the jaguar kept coming up. And, and what touching the jaguar, I first heard that expression in 1969, as I say, this shaman saved my life. And what he got me to do was touch the jaguar of fear. So on vision quests, these shamans will often see a jaguar. And when they see a jaguar, it symbolizes something that they know they must change in their lives or for the community. And they're afraid to make that change. They, there's something holding them back. And so if you run from that jaguar, it, it chases you. But if you touch it, it gives you energy. I'll give you an, an example, the, the one I've been talking about, basically. So I'm, I was deep in the Amazon rainforest living with the Schwa people who at the time were hunters and gatherers. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And I was dying. I couldn't keep any food down. I, I was extremely weak. I really couldn't stand up by myself. And I couldn't leave. It was a very long walk out of dense jungle to the nearest Dirt, dirt, terrible dirt road. And if I could find a rickety old bus, it would take another two days of a, of a terrible ride up, up into the Andes before I could get to a, any kind of a medical facility, as, as we know medical facilities. <laughs> and one night, this shaman took me on this journey where what I saw was that I was raised in New Hampshire, about 300 years of Yankee Calvinists. I was taught to wash my hands a lot. We were very hygienic. We ate very simple and mild foods. And suddenly I'm living with people who've never seen a bar of soap. And they eat some very strange foods. For example, in the Amazon, people don't drink water out of the rivers. They know the rivers are not safe to drink out of. They're filled with organic matter. You know, there's dead trees, dead animals, all kinds of things in those rivers. So they, the women make a kind of beer called chicha. And they make it by chewing the manioc root and spitting it. That sets up a fermentation process and you get a kind of a beer, and then you can add water to that, and, and there's alcohol. So they don't know about germs necessarily, but they know that it works, kills the germs. And I was drinking a lot of spit beer because, <laughs> because there wasn't any Perrier, you know? And I, I was eating a lot of very strange foods, live squirming white gross, which were a delicacy for them. 
and 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 other things because there weren't any cliff bars. And on this shamanic journey, I saw that I, as I'm going into this journey, the the shaman says, "Touch the jaguar," and suddenly I saw this jaguar, and he said, "Touch it, touch it." He knew that I was saying it, and I I did. I touched it, and what happened was then I heard a voice, like my mother's voice, saying, "Son, it'll kill you." And I saw myself eating these these squirming white grubs and drinking this spit beer. Son, it'll kill you was the voice. And then I saw a vision of how incredibly healthy the schwa were, the people I lived with. The men are built like Tarzan, you know, they're they're very robust people. And the women, I was in my early 20s, the women were looking very good. People live to be very, <laughs> people live to be very old if they don't die from a hunting accident or a tipped over a canoe in the, in the rapids or, you know, some accident like that. And so during that journey, I saw that it, it, it came to me that it was not the food and drink that were killing me. It was my perception, my mindset around the food and drink. And after that, I was healthy. And the shaman, for payment, essentially demanded that I become his apprentice. 1969, I graduated from business school uh, there was no future in shamanism in those days. <laughs> there is now, but there wasn't then. I had no interest. I'd never even heard of a shaman until I got until this had all happened. But he saved my life, so so I I agreed and and I studied extensively with him, and then later with shamans in many other places, as I've said. And throughout all of that, I learned about this idea that it's all about perception, and so touching that jaguar is about reaching out and going to that which we fear, or going to some blockage in our lives. You know, here's, here's another quick example. I always wanted to be a writer. I was a, in high school. I was editor of the newspaper and literary magazine, et cetera, et cetera. Went to college. I had an English teacher who was extremely critical of my writing. I thought it was very good. He was critical. I dropped out of college as a result of it. When I went back to college, I, I didn't want to do any writing. I didn't want to get criticized again. So I went to business school, spent the next 10 years after after getting out of the Peace Corps as an economist and chief economist, an economic hitman. I didn't write. And then suddenly I was became aware that that teacher might have been wrong. I, I remembered how critical he'd been of Bob Dylan's songs. Bob Dylan was the, won the Nobel Prize in literature. So the jaguar I had to touch was this voice, this teacher who I respected, who was a published author, who didn't like my writing, his voice saying, hey, that's no good, you get a C. And I had to touch that Jaguar and say, hey, just because he feels that way doesn't mean it's right. He's wrong. I'm a good writer. I'm going to keep writing. And that's the kind of thing where we, we touch that. If we run from that, I was, I've been running for many years from this idea of writing. I'm not going to write anymore because I can't take the criticism. Writing is too important to me. I can't handle the criticism. Finally, I touched that Jaguar and said, to hell with the criticism. I'm going to write anyway because I like what I write. And actually, I had teachers in high school that said I was a great writer. They weren't published, but so what? And so that's the whole idea, Joshua, is, is we, and we're at this time now where we've all got to touch this Jaguar, which is our fear of change. We know that this death economy is not working. We know that there's hurricanes, there's tidal waves, there's um, earthquakes and fires, all these once-in-100-year events that happen every year or so. And we, we, we know we've got to change, but we're fearful of change. What does that mean? Does that mean we can't, you know, does that mean I can't go to Latin America anymore? I can't, I can't I, if I change, does that mean I can't fly anymore? I can't take groups, I can't write books? What does it mean? And we're, we, we're fearful of that change, so we, we don't do it. And we, we kind of chalk up these catastrophes these hurricanes or whatever, as local events. So if you survive the hurricane or the tsunami or whatever, if you survive it, you know that within days or maybe it's going to take a couple of weeks, but the outside world is going to come to your rescue. Bottles of water will arrive. Food will arrive. And then a leader will say, we're going to rebuild. So we've always thought, well, we're just going to rebuild. We're going to go back to normal. But now suddenly the whole world, every human being on this planet, is being impacted by the coronavirus. There is no outside world come to save us. And I think, you know, we're getting a very, very strong message that we need to recognize that we all need to come together on this planet to do things to change the way that we've been living, to, to transform this death economy to a life economy. 
but we have to touch that jaguar, which is the jaguar that the fear, you know, oh, do we really have to work with the Russians and the Chinese instead of competing with them and seeing them as the enemy? Do we need to come together with them? Do we need to recognize that although they're citizens of Russia and I'm a citizen of the United States, we're all citizens of the world and we've got to come together? Can we do that? That's, that's scary. How do we touch that jaguar? That's what we're dealing with right now, I think, Joshua. Compared to your economics books, this is a really big book. It certainly did change my perception, but this is on a whole other level. It feels like you've been looking into what the root causes were. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but you, you're getting to more and more of what's really going on that's leading to a death economy versus a life economy. And I was prepared to talk to you about systems and, and looking at systems and not just changing elements within them. And systems ultimately, they're driven by their beliefs, by the goals of the system that are, I think what you're talking about, that we're talking about not just changing, it's changing the beliefs and goals that we're, that are driving us, that are how we perceive the world. Am I, am I getting this right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the most, probably the kind of the umbrella rule that drives so much of this is maximizing short-term benefits, profits for corporations, your material well-being of us as individuals. How's my stock doing today? Uh, can I get a raise? Should I move on to another job? These kinds of things. How do I get my, my child into a really good college? And we don't think about, well, what's the point of having a really good college education if, if we've got the coronavirus sweeping the world? We haven't thought to that degree, and I think now we're needing to, and, and, and that's exactly what I was addressing in Touching the Jaguar, and it's, it's really fascinating to me how, in a way, this, this, it's like this, the Jaguar reared up and touched me back when I was writing the book and said, you need to write a book that, that deals with uh, how do we expect and deal with the unexpected, and that's what we've got right now. And we're going to, you know, we're going to get a lot more of it unless we deal with it now. If we really deal with it now, I think we can, we can move beyond. It, it, it concerns me sometimes when I hear people constantly talking about, when, when do we get back to normal? I don't think we'll ever get back to normal. We shouldn't ever get back to normal because normal is what's caused the problem. We need to create a new normal. It doesn't have to be bad at all. We don't have to all live in grass houses. It's, it's creating this life economy. It's a, it's a new way of viewing what it means to be human on this planet. And it can be full employment. We can, we can live good lives, but we have to re- lead different lives. I've been saying a lot that what's driving the system, in my words, and I think it's similar, is, is growth and externalizing costs. And maybe I, I could similarly say maximizing profit seems to be what drives people. So a lot of times people say, look at Elon Musk. He's a paragon of, of making electric cars and he's going to, he's a, he's great for the environment. And when I look at the, his goals, they seem to me, he wants growth and externalizing costs. He wants to maximize shareholder value. He wants to maximize profits. And so I always look at the, not the technology that's coming out, but the beliefs that are driving what the people who are using this technology What's, what beliefs and goals they're operating under. And so I look at him and I think it seems like he's promoting a system that's creating more waste, even if one part of the system he's making a little bit more efficient. Overall, he's, if, you make an, if you make a system that pollutes more efficient, then you're going to pollute more efficiently. Is this a similar perspective to what you have? Yeah, you're, you're really talking about perception. What, his perception of what it means to be successful and it can be to make uh, cars that are more efficient. I don't use fossil fuels or use a lot less fossil fuels, but still driven by the perception that the goal is to maximize uh, consumer profits. Uh, sorry, not consumer profits, uh, shareholder profits or his profits. So you've got one side of the equation that, that looks pretty good. How do we minimize the environmental impact of a car? The other side of the equation is how do... I maximize short-term profits for me and my shareholders. And that's the perception that needs to change to say, well, it's really about maximizing long-term benefits. And there's a lot of movement in that direction. I, I don't know what, what Musk is thinking these days, but I do know that in the, in the last few years, and I talk about this in, in the book, Touching the Jaguar, 
the whole idea of a Green New Deal is pretty pervasive out there now. B corporations, benefit corporations. My publisher was the first publishing company to ever become a B corporation and then a benefit corporation. And, you know, these 192 executives back last August at the the business roundtable basically defined moving into a life economy. They came out with a statement that said, our goals can no longer be about just maximizing profits for our investors. We have to take care of our employees, suppliers, and the communities where we work. This was a statement they made. That was an amazing change in perception. Are they doing it? I don't know. We, we, you and I, are the consumers, the employees of these companies, and the, the investors need to hold them to those. But they've stated it. They, they've got the perception out there. You know, BlackRock, this huge investment firm, is, is pulling out of investing in fossil fuels and, and requiring that it's, the companies that invest in are, are doing more to take care of the environment. So there's a there's a large change in perception that's that's already occurring and, and has occurred. I think it's fair to say I, I, tr- I before the virus set in, I traveled a great deal all, all over the world, speaking at various events ranging from huge economic forums in St. Petersburg, Russia, twelve thousand executives and world leaders were there, uh, to a rock festival in the Czech Republic and another rock festival in Costa Rica and uh, teaching at universities and all kinds of events. And everywhere I, I was going, I, I would see that people are really waking up. They, they, there's a consciousness change. It's really a revolution. And it, it, waking up to the fact that we live on a, on a tiny, fragile space station, the Earth, and we've been guiding her toward disaster, and we need to reboot the navigation system. And so I, I had great hope that we were moving in that direction. And people kept asking me at various times, well, but don't you think we need to have some major crisis to really push us over? And I, you know, I'd say, well, I, I, hope, I hope not, uh, but maybe. Well, here's the crisis. It's the global. Everybody's being struck by it. And we're waking up. And hopefully the people who want to maintain the status quo, which is usually the ones with most of the power and wealth, Hopefully they will not tell us that we can return to normal. We can just rebuild the way it was before. And if they do, hopefully we won't listen to them because this isn't about rebuilding what we had before. We're just going to have more problems. This is about understanding that we need to rebuild in a new way. We need to create a new normal. We need to transform a death economy into a life economy. And that means paying people and companies to clean up pollution I imagine if we, if your tax dollars, which are some of where fifty percent of of your taxes go to pay the military, the Pentagon, and the discretionary budget, imagine if the tax dollars that pay Raytheon or General Dynamics to make missiles and and war material, instead pay these companies to come up with ways to to mine the plastic in the oceans and recycle it and to regenerate all the terrible, destroyed environments around the world where oil has leaked and mines have been dug and cities have been, or shopping malls abandoned and so on and so forth. We can pay people to do these things and to create technologies that are way beyond anything Musk has even envisioned so far that take solar and wind to big new levels and, and, and perhaps use the air itself to create energy. I mean, there's, there's a huge, huge opportunity here to create something really beautiful and it doesn't mean we're all going to have to go back and live in caves. That last thing you said doesn't mean we all have to go back to live in caves. Here's a perception that I see a lot of is if I act, but no one else does, and what I do doesn't make a difference or what one person does doesn't matter, which you've consistently pointed out otherwise, and you've shown otherwise, that feels to me like a, a very common perception that as long as people hold it, it's going to be true for them. But once they exit it, things really change. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I ask people, well, hey, pick a hero. Who's a hero in your life? Mother Teresa, George Washington. <laughs> I don't know. Pick a hero, any hero that you, in your life. And you can see that that person was just another person like you. And when they get started, they had no idea that they were going to be successful that they were going to accomplish what they accomplish. 
But they did. And then all the people that followed in line, the ones who worked for Mother Teresa, that, that, I mean, they have tremendous support there. Mother Teresa didn't do her work on her own. She had huge supporters behind her. Gandhi, he had all kinds of financial backers and volunteers that worked and did their own individual stuff. All of that added up to these changes. George Washington, you know, he couldn't have, he couldn't have beat the British without huge support from the, the woodsmen of, uh, of my state, New Hampshire, or the sailors out of uh, Massachusetts and Maine, you know, the fishermen who became the Navy. We've all got a role to play in this, and we've all got incredible power. I do think it's important that people not only act, but they also spread the word. So if you decide not to buy from company A because its motives are not correct, it's not paying its workers in Indonesia enough money to make those tennis shoes or whatever, and you buy instead from company B because they are trying harder, that's not enough. That's a, that's a start. But then you need to send emails or texts or, or, or whatever you send, um, tweets, whatever, to, to both companies and tell the one why you didn't buy from them and the other why you did. And, and enroll all your social networking circles to, to ask them to do something similar and let these companies know. So we need to take the actions, but the actions need to include communicating what we're doing so that we really get the word out there. And that's how perceptions change on a, on a big level. And let's face it, perceptions don't have to change on a really huge level. When Milton Friedman came up with the idea, you know, really spread this, this idea of, uh, of maximizing short-term profits regardless of social and environmental costs, that only had to impact a fairly small number of, of executives and politicians and consumers and business school students to have a huge impact. When Copernicus wrote a paper that showed that the universe did not revolve around the earth, that instead the earth revolved around the sun, it changed everything, that one paper. But he had to get the word out, and then a few people had to buy into it, and then it spread and spread and spread. Does touching the jaguar, is it, I mean, I've only read an excerpt of it. Is, is it a how-to book? Does it walk you through these changes, or do you have to have a shamanic experience yourself? No, it, it, you do not have to have a shamanic experience. There's a whole, yeah, there's a, there's a whole section on, on and, and actually the whole book kind of leads up to this. So, you know, I like to tell stories, Joshua. I, I, they're true stories, but I think that stories, if we get through to people, it's one of the reasons, you know, Confessions of an Economic Hitman has now sold, I don't know, it's well over 2 million copies, maybe over 3 million, I don't know anymore, and, and many, 30-some-odd languages. And, and what I keep hearing is people love to read the stories, and the stories are interwoven with facts, but the stories behind the facts, and so that's how Touching the Jaguar is written, too. It's written about indigenous people and what they've got to teach us and the, uh, the formation of the Pachamama Alliance, a nonprofit that I, that I co-founded. But it also uh, really gets into the death economy and the life economy, and then it, it, it presents a, a, a total a strategy for each one of us can use individually and communally to change ourselves. And it's, it's, this is a 10-minute daily practice. You can actually do it in less than 10 minutes if you want to, or you can do it weekly. It's, it's completely outlined in there. You know, I, I don't have time here to get into the whole thing, but what I would say is, is really what it does is ask each, of, each person to ask himself or herself the question, what will give me the most satisfaction to do in the rest of my life? What's my dream? What's my higher purpose? When I'm lying on that proverbial deathbed and look back, what is it that I wished I had done or that I'm happy that I did do? And, and, and now do it. and Define what it is you really, really want to do. I want to be a writer. I want to write books or whatever. And then look at what's the jaguar? What's the obstacle standing in your way? Well, I had an English teacher that told me I was a lousy writer. And then once I touched that Jaguar, the next Jaguar was, oh, I don't really have time to write. I'm, I'm too busy working as an economist or, or whatever. And then I touched that Jaguar and it says, well, get up half an hour earlier in the morning. Go to bed a little early. Don't watch quite as much television. Go to bed a little early. Get up half an hour earlier because I do best in the morning and write for half an hour every day. So we look at the obstacle and what is it going to take to touch it? And, you know, then what actions do we need to take? So, oh, the action is, I got to write. If I want to be a writer, I got to write. And maybe just half an hour a day is going to do it, at least as a start. And so it takes everybody through this process of asking yourself, what is it you most want in life? What's holding you back? 
What, what are the obstacles? What are the voices that tell you you're too old, you're too young, you're not well enough educated, you're overeducated, whatever it is. What are the voices telling you you can't do it? And how do you, those are the Jaguars, and how do you touch those Jaguars? What do you do to overcome that? And then what actions do you take to move forward? And the, the book spells out a whole, you know, pretty simple process for asking yourself some questions and going through this. And then on a daily basis, uh, there's a little routine that people can use. And again, it doesn't have to be every day. And it also says, so it's not just what do I want for myself, but also how do I tie this to transforming a death economy into a life economy? For example, in writing. So yeah, I want to be a writer. I'm going to write books. I'm going to write for half an hour. And I'm going to write stories that help people understand the importance of transferring a death economy into a life economy. That's just my personal example as a writer. But you can do that as a parent, as a teacher, as a yoga teacher, as a, as a carpenter, as a plumber. Whatever it is, you can bring this to bear. For example, I have a friend who's a carpenter. And he asked me, well, how do I do this as a carpenter? I said, well, do you use sustainable materials? And he says, I've tried to do that, but my, but my, my clients objected. Some of it costs a little bit more. And I'd say, well, tell them it's not a cost. It's an investment in the future for their lives and for their kids and their grandchildren. And, you know, whatever we do, we can, we can relate it to this. And again, I, I go into that in some detail in touching the Jaguar. So is it fair to say one of the best things to do, even though, I mean, the pandemic and, you know, there are going to be climate issues to come and plastic and mercury and all these things. It resonates with me, but me five years ago would, would not believe this, that the best thing to do is actually to be as in touch with yourself as you can as a starting point. Because if you're not, you just get, I feel like you're like a bull with a ring in the nose. You just get pulled around and all your strength isn't really worth anything. Can you connect? It seems obvious to me, but I'm not sure it's obvious to everyone. It certainly wouldn't have been obvious to me before that being the best carpenter you can, if you if that's your thing, is actually effective to making a difference on how the world responds to a virus. Are we going to grant yet more authoritarian powers to authoritarian people, or are we going to learn that, oh, we don't need to do all this stuff that happens to pollute. We can through struggle together, we can get closer than we would have otherwise, even if we're not physically together. Yeah, but I, I, and I think what's really important is to make sure that you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. So let's take the example of a carpenter. If what you love is carpentry, guess what you love more than anything? That's your bliss. Yeah, do it. If you're doing carpentry because your dad was a carpenter and told you you had to be a carpenter and you really don't like that, what you really want to do is... Uh, I don't know, be a, be a yoga teacher, I don't know, with something, then then don't be a carpenter, <laughs> go out and be, become a yoga teacher. So we really need to follow our bliss. We need to do that which will bring us the greatest satisfaction in life, the greatest joy, because if we don't do that, we're never successful. We, we, we could make a lot of money, but we're not going to really be successful. So I think it's really important for people to really look at themselves and ask themselves, what is it I most want to do? What is my higher purpose? And then uh, go out and do it. And, and always tie it to the larger issue. Yes, it's personal. You want to, if you want to be a good carpenter, if that's truly your desire, then you work to do that. And at the same time, you let your clients know that, that you're very dedicated to creating a better world and to use carpentry to, to, to promote that. Sustainable products, maybe downsizing, whatever it is that you feel is how carpentry can, can bring us into to this. And yeah, we're focusing on carpentry, but you could say the same thing about any, anything at all, musicians, artists, parents, teachers, plumbers, uh, whatever. And, and to, but to define what it is you really want for you. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. 
That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. And if I'm able to turn this around fast enough, then there's an upcoming workshop. Is that right? That people, is it going to cover things like this? Absolutely. Yeah. So if, if, if your listeners go to touchingthejaguarbook.com or they can go to johnperkins.org, uh, they, can, they can sign up for this workshop, which is about a $300 value. It's free on April 29th, where we really go deeply, deeply into this. And it goes into a lot of the stuff that's in the book. But since the book doesn't come out until June 16th, you can pre-order it. But I, I felt this was a good time to really start going into these daily practices and, and what it is people can, can do to, to transform their fear into action to change their lives and the world. And that's what we need to do right now. This is a sort of workshop you've been leading for a while. This will be a new online version or is it something new? Well, I, I've been doing these workshops, the 80s, shamanic workshops and then economic workshops. And then I've been kind of combining them so that it's been evolving. And yeah, this is, this is, the, this is the, the height of the evolution so far from everything I've learned from the, all these books and all the teachers that I've studied under and worked with and, and feedback that I've gotten from people throughout workshops. And then I've been doing webinar workshops recently. I've learned a lot in this process. And, and this is the, the workshop we'll do on April 29th is uh, the, you know, kind of the, well, it's the next step. I don't think it'll be the last step, but it's, it, is, it is the next and most powerful step so far. And incidentally, I say April 29th, but when you, when you sign up, if, if you're not available April 29th, it's, it's also going to be recorded. So you can tune into it after that. I'm reading someone who dives into the depths of the death economy, but you're happy if I read you right. Yes, because I'm doing what I really love to do. I'm following my bliss. I'm writing. I'm speaking out. I love doing this. I, you know, I, I, I love talking to you. But my favorite thing of all for me personally is writing. That's my meditation. And I try to I do it every day because I, I love doing it. Uh, when I was an economist for 10 years, I was chief economist, economic hitman. I was making a lot of money. I was traveling first class around the world. I was meeting with presidents, staying in the best hotels, eating in the finest restaurants in every part of the world. I was living what I thought was the American dream. I kept forcing myself to do this because I'd, grown, I'd been brought up, to, uh, you know, I'd been trained in school to think that's, that's, that's it, man. That's the dream. And I was miserable, Joshua. It finally struck me, damn, I was living off Valium and booze. I'd be traveling through time zones from Boston to Indonesia, through, you know, all these time zones and, and the only way, and, and having huge important meetings when I was in Indonesia and, uh, as I traveled, I would go to sleep at night taking Valium and alcohol, and I'd wake up in the morning and, and load myself with lots of caffeine. And I was miserable. <laughs> I, was, I was leading what I'd been told was the American dream. And suddenly I realized how miserable I was and uh, got out of it. And now, ever since, I've been doing what I love doing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy with what I do. That doesn't mean I don't get concerned and, and, and about what's going on in the world right now. And that doesn't mean sometimes I get a little frustrated by not being able to go out to meet with my friends or go to a, a restaurant, meet people or, or, or whatever. Yeah, it can be kind of frustrating. But I think here's a Jaguar for all of us to touch. So people are sitting at home. They're, they're self-isolating. And there's some people out there saying, damn, I just can't do this any longer. I'm a social animal. I, I can't do this for another month. Forget about two months or whatever it's going to be. I'm, I'm, it's going to drive me crazy. Well, that's a Jaguar. You touch it and it says, hey, wait a minute. Didn't, I, didn't you want to learn how to play the flute? You got a flute in your house. Go on the internet, learn how to play the flute. Or didn't you want to sharpen your skills as a painter? Well, get out there and paint or as a writer. Or didn't you want to spend more time on the phone talking to your family who lives overseas? Well, here's your opportunity. Or didn't you want to read more books or watch more movies or whatever? So the Jaguar then says, yeah, you're self-isolating, but look at all the opportunities that creates for you. And suddenly you move away from this idea that uh, I can't handle it for another month or two. And you say, hey, man, this is a great month. <laughs> this, is a, this is a great way to be. I've got lots of time to do these things that I've always wanted to do. That's, you made me think of a, an idea I've been playing with. I don't know if this will, how does this sound? I just interviewed my mom for this podcast and posted that. And she 
she looks at me not flying and she's like, it's total deprivation. She's like, Josh, when I was a kid, we couldn't have these things and now we can. And you want to take that away. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm internally, I'm way happier now as a result of not flying than I was for flying. And suddenly now everyone's not flying. All these people who for years were telling me it's absolutely impossible for me not to fly. And I'm thinking about suggesting to them, and I don't know if this is in the same vein or different, to say, all right, you can't fly. Make that choice deliberate. Instead of being like, I can't because they say I can't, choose not to. I mean, either way, you're not flying, but now you can experience it as like, what are you doing to replace it? What can you get out of it? Because then you have a chance of it sticking. Instead of being miserable at home, you can be creative at home. Right. And maybe, you know, encourage your mom to ask herself, why is flying so important to me? Am I flying away from something or am I flying towards something? And if it's away from something, then it's time for me not to fly away from that. If I'm flying towards something, what am I flying toward? And how can I achieve that same thing by being right here in my house? You know, I think that these are important questions to ask ourselves. Why do we do things? Are we, is it freedom from or freedom for? And yeah, you know, I think it's so amazing to, to have these opportunities. I recently had breakfast in San Francisco a few months ago with a man who'd spent 41 years in the penitentiary. He was in for life. He'd committed murder when he was 18 years old. And it was DNA had proved that he was innocent. And rather than feeling resentful, he said he learned how to play the flute and make flutes. And he had these beautiful flutes. He'd studied with an indigenous teacher. And he had uh, learned how to make these beautiful flutes and play them. And he'd learned a lot more from these indigenous teachers. And so, you know, he'd used his time in prison he said the first 12 years were really tough. He was a- angry, he was frustrated, but then he, then he realized that this had created some opportunities for him that he wouldn't have had otherwise, that he would have been stuck in, in the rote job that he'd, that he'd had. It was a very, very interesting teaching for me, and certainly we don't have to go to prison to get that kind of teaching, but we can look at this time now that we're in as, as a time kind of like that. So how do we see the silver lining, if you will, the old proverbial silver lining of what's been given to us. If we can just look at this time of the virus as a gift rather than an enemy or an inconvenience, it changes our perception of each day. So let's wrap it up there. I, I, I want to say one thing that each time you've told a story in this call, I find them engaging and gripping. And so I have to say, you mentioned how people like your stories in your books. And I also put the, the writing as was also like, can't put this down. I remember just being like, all right, Josh, go to sleep. And I was like, no, it's just one more chapter of confessions. And I really like the writing. And I presume that with practice, it's only gotten better. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. You know, people sometimes ask me, what's the secret to being a good writer? The secret is write. <laughs> every day I, I i don't know what the truth here is but i tell people sort of tongue in cheek they ask me I, I tell them you know i've probably written a thousand pages for everyone published and i just write 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 and you don't you know get a sort of it out you do lots of editing i love to edit I, you know i love to, that's to me that's that's dressing the mannequin i call it putting, you know making it pretty making it nice making it interesting uh and if you think about it uh, the concept pianist practices for a thousand hours for every hour that she or he spends on the stage in the concert. A, a professional tennis player practices for hours and hours and hours for every hour they actually spend on the competition court. And so that's part of life. If you want to be good at something, just do it and keep doing it. We talked about a carpenter, good, good carpenter. Carpenters become good because they apprentice, because they learn carpentry, because they spend a lot of time perfecting that, that skill and art. And so, yes, uh, I, I hope that my writing gets better with every book I, I write. I, th- I think it does. And I'd like to close by asking if you want to say something directly to the listeners. I mean, you said a lot already, but if there's anything else you want to close with. Well, I think that it's, yeah, again, I think for each of you listeners, it's very, very important to look at this as a time when you can really go deep inside yourself and ask yourself, what is it I, I really want for the rest of my life, no matter how old you are? Where do I want to go from here? How do I want to spend the the days remaining to me? 
And what is it I must do to make that happen? What's been holding me back or what might hold me back? And how do I take actions to move beyond that? How do I change my perception and then take the actions to move beyond that? And when we do that, I think each of you, when you do that, you'll find that it's an incredibly powerful experience in your life. Perhaps the very most important experience of of your life is to really look at what you want and dream big. Don't be afraid to dream big. What's holding you back? And what are the first steps you need to take to make that happen? And then what steps do you need to take every single day uh, to make that happen? And, you know, if you miss a day or two here or there, don't punish yourself. Just <laughs> double down the next day. It's just so exciting. It's so blessed to be a human being. And I think this is an incredibly exciting time to be alive, Joshua. Is it scary? Yes. We're all scared. We're all concerned. But that's the jaguar, you know? And it's always been during times of the greatest crises that human beings have changed and created something better, moved on, created a new a new epic a new challenge, a new time, a new challenge. And then that ends. So, you know, we created the Industrial Revolution and it gave us a lot, incredible medicine, incredible science, incredible art, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's time now to move beyond that death economy that it also created. It's time to move into something new. And when we do these things, these times that when this happens are challenging, they're scary, but they're also extremely powerful and deeply, deeply gratifying if we go into them, if we look at what is it we're, we're afraid of and how do we touch that jaguar, how do we move beyond it. The power, the bliss that we receive in that process is unimaginable. John Perkins, thank you very much. My pleasure. Keep doing what you're doing, Joshua. It's great work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. John talked about changing perception And things that might sound small, like, say, tweeting or emailing companies on actions of theirs that you don't like. And it may sound like these, like one thing's really big and one thing's really small or things won't make a difference. In fact, almost everyone that I talk to says little things like that don't make a difference, so they don't act. In fact, big things they don't act on, like not flying or something big like that. Big personally, but they say it would be small in the whole scheme of things. He talks about these things on his TEDx talk too, which I'll put the link to in the notes. In my perception, they're letting their beliefs limit them. They limit what they do. They limit how they live. They don't live the lives that they could. As I understand John, he's saying that those beliefs and actions build on each other. They may seem small, but if you do the actions, they will change your beliefs. If you change your perceptions, they will make the actions meaningful. They did with George Washington. They did with everyone who made a difference. I'll close with a question for myself and to you. What am I perceiving that I could perceive differently? How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.